Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Friday, April 15th. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melchior. It is our waiver episode for the week. We do this each and every Friday afternoon. If you want to watch us live on YouTube, we go live at 4 o'clock Eastern. We're always happy to take questions throughout the time that we're recording as well. As we do each and every week, we're taking a look at hitters that are available, take a look at some pitchers that are available, dig into some bullpen situations as well, a lot of streaming pitchers, a lot of hitters that have been on our radar throughout the week and discussed on our shows throughout the week are atop the list, depending on the type of league that you're playing in, and sort of grouping the hitters into shallow bats and you know, medium and deep league bats. The first name that naturally comes up is Stephen Kwan. Al, there's really nothing left to say about Stephen Kwan because it's all been said throughout this week on the show, in articles, on other podcasts out there, in other articles around the fantasy baseball industry. But the the last real question, I guess, if there is one, is is Stephen Kwan the kind of player that should be rostered in 100% of leagues? Is he the kind of guy that's showing us enough early on where you would want to have him in a 10-team league with three outfield spots? Because... He's over 80% rostered now on CBS. That number continues to climb. And those types of leagues are really the last frontier for him to be universally rostered. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you asked this question because this was what I let off the weekly waiver wire piece with this very question. You know, just for the sake of consistency, uh, write about Stephen Kwan. Make it, make it just a... Uh, a straight uh, uh, across the board uh, could check that one off for, for Stephen Kwan too. But uh, so my answer to that question was no, I don't think he is. And I looked for comps in terms of skills and uh, the name I came up with and I wrote about this in the piece is JP Crawford. And I understand that they're, they're different positions and maybe you could argue that somebody with that skill set has a little bit more a little bit more value uh, at shortstop or at uh, outfield than at shortstop, which is just so deep. But um, you know, ultimately, I, what what you're getting from Quan is right now the highest batting average in the major leagues. That's obviously going to regress, and when that levels off, uh, what you'll be left with is is probably not very much power. And granted, uh, maybe some good run production, but there he's not the only overachiever in the Guardians lineup at this point. So I'm not even sure how much run production there's going to be, whether or, not, whether or not he'll hit enough to maintain a position high in the order. So I just think that there are better options to go for in 10-team leagues. And maybe there's even a few 12-team leagues where Quan is available. And I you know, I laid out some other options in the piece that I, I think are, are probably better over the longer term. Yeah, we'll talk about many of those over the course of this episode, but uh, I did think it was appropriate for you to lead off with him. I thought it was appropriate for us to do the same thing because he's the most exciting player in fantasy baseball right now. Since we didn't expect this this quickly, all of it comes back to me to this question about how much power are we going to get? How many stolen bases are we going to get? And I think there's one one word of caution that I'd like to put out there. It's not a word. It's like a, a disclaimer. It's more than one word. I think when you have a player like Stephen Kwan who puts so many balls in play, I think he does have a very good hit tool. I think that's pretty clear. Looking at the lack of swinging strikes and the extremely low K rate, and he did these things in the minor leagues, you have a player who is going to draw probably almost certain blue ink in terms of his average exit velocity because he's hitting so many balls that other guys don't hit. So instead of swinging and missing, he gets some weak contact in there. That's part of making contact all the time. So I guess I, what I'm saying is I wouldn't look at his low average exit velocity and say he has no power based on that. Where he's got one barrel out of 19 batted balls 
entering play on Friday. That's the number you want to keep an eye on. How many barrels does he get? As we get more and more information, how many times does he hit the ball hard at the optimal launch angle? Because I think that will give us a better guide as to where his true in-game home run power actually lies. And I think the thing you can use max exit velo for is approximating a player's raw power ability. So far, and it's still early, he's got a max exit velocity of 103. And I looked it up. That would have been the absolute lowest among qualified hitters last year. There are some players near the bottom of that leaderboard that pop some home runs for us, right? Merrifield's low on that list most years. Mookie Betts came out really low on it last year, too. So it doesn't mean that he's not good. Josh Rojas, I think, was actually dead last among qualified players. Rojas hits some home runs. Mm -hmm. So I, I just it's just a word of caution for people out there trying to approximate ceiling in that particular category i don't know if he's necessarily a, a five homer guy or an eight homer guy i think he's probably more likely a 12 to 15 home run guy over a full season i don't think he's going to run a lot and i think because he gets on base a ton his hold on a spot near the top of the lineup is actually pretty stable so i look at that as one of the key things like i think from a skill standpoint the crawford the jp crawford comp is is a good one to bring up just in terms of like we have other guys that do similar things that we don't get that excited about, so temper the enthusiasm a little bit. But I do think, compared to the situation for Crawford now, as that Seattle lineup keeps getting better, I think Quan has a pretty distinct leg up in terms of where he's likely to stay in the batting order for the longer term. Relative to Crawford, that that absolutely is true. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, he could really provide a lot of value in the leagues where he's already being rostered. I just think that you know, he's pretty much hit the cap of where he's likely to make make a dent. The other kind of shadow league bats ha also happen to be outfielders, and you might be thinking about picking up one of these three players if you're in an eight or a ten team league. You've got Stephen Kwan, and you've got Connor Joe, and you've got Anthony Santander, who just two years ago looked like he might have been a great find for Baltimore, and he still might be. And I think it's interesting. Kwan is more rostered than both of those players, and if you go back just a few weeks ago to the end of draft season, Joe and Santander were being drafted ahead of Quan. So I'm just curious if you could only have one of those three players for the rest of the season. Again, assuming a more shallow format, who do you actually want? Do you want Joe as a guy that gets to play half his games in Colorado? Do you want Santander as a guy that might be in the best playing time situation of all three, potentially, depending on how things break? How, how do you stack them up against each other? Well, I think in the proverbial vacuum, I would rank them Joe Santander Quan. But it also depends on how your roster is constructed because part of the reason that I think Joe out of the three is going to create the most value is because I think he's got the best shot to really help you a lot with batting average. Uh, I think he could finish with a 300 batting average. And yeah, there, there's probably going to be a split there where maybe you're not going to want to start him in a lot of weeks where he's away from Coors Field because he's going to get that that BABIP and home run bump from, from playing at Coors. But overall, I think he's going to put up the best numbers of the three, whereas Santander, I think he's the best bet to, to hit 20 or 25 home runs by, by a lot, actually, and give you maybe a 260, maybe at best 270 batting average. So if, if you're not that worried about batting average uh, and you're lacking power, then to me, Santander's the, the guy to go. If you uh, don't really want to be worried about streaming somebody, I think Santander's the way to go. But no matter which way I slice this up, I actually do put, do put Quan last. It's strange to me. We're looking at a bunch of players in Cleveland that have 
jumped a lot in value through the first you know, two weeks worth of games that we're getting, less than two weeks worth really at this point. And Owen Miller, who I, I had a, a small, small free agent bid on just a couple days ago in an AL only league, went for one third of a budget in my AL only league that runs uh, pickups on Thursday night. So I thought that was a tad aggressive. I don't think if you're in an AL only league and he's available, you have to go quite that high to get Owen Miller. But I am curious what you, you think about him as someone that could be a bigger part of the first base plan than we have previously thought. I mean, what kind of skills are we looking at here and, and just, how do you see this role playing out? Because he came up last season, and because of his versatility as a guy that can play multiple infield spots, I thought there was a little bit here to get excited about, at least in 15-team leagues. But I think we're seeing interest kind of trickle in closer to 12-team leagues because he's been hot this week. Yeah, I mean, if you've got a player that you're you know, spending that large portion of your, your fab budget on that you wouldn't have spent any of your budget on like five days ago, that's probably not... You know, not a good sign, but uh, I'm glad to see that Miller is off to a good start because this does give him the opportunity to to play regularly. Like you say, there's a a big opportunity there at first base, but he could also play some second base. But what's what's interesting to me is that uh, he's kind of right up there with Stephen Kwan in terms of just a a ridiculous level of contact skills over a, a very small number of games. And unlike Kwan, this is not something you would have projected for Owen Miller. So it'll be be interesting to see over the next couple of weeks if that's something that that sticks, maybe not at the current level, but at a better level than what we saw both in his major league debut last year and uh, across his minor league career. But he, he's got he's got a little bit of thump there. So with with some regular play, I could see Miller getting about 15 home runs or so. And again, depending on where the, the strikeout rate is at, could really help you with batting average. So um Definitely, I think, a more valuable player than we all thought four or five days ago, but maybe not as valuable <laughs> as, uh, as the, uh, the the bidding out there is suggesting. Yeah, and I think the other thing you got to keep in mind, too, with that defensive versatility is that you know second base might be where he ends up playing a lot, depending on what they do with Josh Naylor. I think the Guardians want to give Josh Naylor an opportunity once he's healthy, and I think they're right to. He's still relatively young. He's shown some flashes of at least being a good big side platoon guy from a hit tool perspective. So I, I think we could see a move around and ultimately be a pretty versatile piece in this Cleveland lineup. So I'm, I'm intrigued by Owen Miller, but I think I'm limiting him more to 15 team mixed leagues for now. Maybe he's a bottom of the waiver wire list, you know, a min bid sort of player in a 12 since he's seemingly holding on to that first base job, at least temporarily. Um, the other player in Cleveland, less rostered than Quan, less rostered than Owen Miller right now, Oscar Mercado. We were excited about Oscar Mercado a couple of years ago. It hasn't really been the the subsequent power-speed combo that we were expecting after that 2019 debut. He had 15 homers that year, 15 steals, hit 269 while playing 115 games. Uh, the pandemic-shortened 2020 season was just brutal on paper, and even last season, it was kind of an up-and-down year for Mercado as well. Uh, but there is early power coming from this profile. So I'm curious if you're back in on Mercado and in what types of leagues uh, are you interested in him? I'm definitely back in on Mercado, uh, 15 team, 14 team, maybe sort of like what you're saying about Owen Miller in terms of 12 team, like just a dollar bid to just see if you've got the the spot to stash him, just to kind of see where this goes. Because 
early on, obviously, we, we can't put too much stake in stats. But when we see something that's just outrageously different from what we expect, uh, like with Stephen Kwan or, or Owen Miller, uh, with Mercado, I mean, this is just incredible to me, DBR. A 61% fly ball rate mm-hmm. so far and a 61% pull rate so far. And he's hitting the ball hard. So, I mean, there, there's a, uh, I don't expect those ratios to hold up you know, by the end of April, much less over the whole season. But I mean, if that's uh, gives us an inkling of, of what's ahead with obviously some regression built in uh, that, you know, there's a lot of power potential there. So he might not wind up being the player that we got excited about two years ago, but uh, he could still be a very useful player, even in 12 teamers. Uh, if this profile holds up. Yeah. I mean, just to that point, three barrels already thus far, not surprising for a guy with three homers, but Oscar Mercado had seven barrels on 173 batted balls all of 2021. That was about a half season's worth of games at the big league level. And I think when you see some underlying changes like that, you see an early shift in pull rate. It could be a guy that's changing his approach. You know, maybe he fixed something mechanically. He's handling inside pitches better. What I'm always curious to see is what adjustment happens back, right? If the the way you used to get Oscar Mercado out has changed, teams are going to catch on to that pretty quickly. Um, but I looked at him as a guy that was pretty well balanced when he arrived in the big leagues. And I I sort of fit him into that that long-term bucket as well, where you know maybe he's not going to be the kind of guy that gets you 30-plus steals the way he did when he was younger in the lower levels of the minor leagues. But I think he's consistently going to be a double-digit stolen base player so long as he's playing nearly every day at the big league level. And if we can unlock some more power to go with that, I could see Mercado being kind of a a nice low-key pickup here early in the season. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Um, some other deeper league bats. I have been poo-pooing Jerks and Profar for several years on this podcast, so I will recuse myself from analyzing him and his value as a waiver wire addition. But Al, in what leagues are you interested in Profar where available this weekend? Well, I've been poo-pooing him too, so uh, I'm not really going shallower than 14 teams with with Profar Uh and unlike with some of the players that we've talked about, I'm just I'm not seeing anything in the profile that intrigues me and say, huh, oh, well, what if this holds up? Um, and maybe it's just a, a function of that we've seen Profar for a long, long time now. I mean, he's, I believe, 29, but he, he came up, I think, when he was 20, 2021. I came up say. real young. Yep. Really young. Uh, so, you know, it seems like he should maybe be 35. He's not, uh, but he's been around a while. So I, I'm trusting that track record more than. I think it's six games. For now, I'm still looking at him more as a temporary glue guy. If I'm looking for help at first base or in the outfield, 
and I just need short-term playing time, that's where I'm using him. So it's not going to be pushing in a lot in leagues that use fab, but I'm I'm not ignoring what's happening because I want to see more. I want to know as a guy that, that switch hits, did he change up his swings? Is there anything that's different that's enabling him to get to this extra power early on? Interesting too, Oscar or uh, Eric Hosmer is, is hitting the ball uh, quite a bit so far in San Diego, a guy that nobody wanted back uh, throughout draft season. Uh, and typically other- the Padres didn't want him either. Yeah, and yet here, here he is producing for them at a, at a decent clip. Just a few other names to think about if you're looking for some deeper league bats. Uh, Jorge Mateo still out there in about 80% of CBS leagues, and just knowing how difficult it is to find uh, cheap speed especially, and in many leagues he's going to be closing in on adding eligibility. Uh, outfield only a lot of places right now, but playing enough at shortstop where you know, that's a nice combo to have, even as a, a bench player who's sort of in and out of the lineup. Uh, strikeout rate's been high early on, so I'm I'm curious, when you look at a player like Mateo who doesn't have a long big league track record to fall back on, how do you decide like when you're going to be patient, not knowing how patient his team might be? Like I think he's just one of those really tough players. Like This applies to Kevin Smith in Oakland, too, who's heavily rostered, I think, because people like me were so excited about him and picked him up everywhere and drafted him late everywhere with the move to Oakland. But I think looking at the small samples, we have our own criteria that we're looking at. And then we also have to figure out what matters to the team. At what point does a team say, yeah, we don't really like what we're seeing. We're going to go to a platoon or we're going to go to a part-time role or we're going to do something a little bit different than we were planning on doing early in the season. So I'm curious how you'd apply that to Mateo and maybe even just to other similar players as we kind of move into this uh, second weekend. Well, the Smith example is a good one. So in, in making this more general, that for me is a very helpful uh, comparison to, to bring to this because I've got Kevin Smith uh, as a starter in my AL only league. And I guessing that this weekend, I'm going to start looking for a backup third baseman. I'm going to see who's on waivers. And of course it's AL only. So probably not great options, but I'm going to see what I can find there or maybe explore uh, making a trade because I am worried that he's not going to have uh, a long leash there uh, to, to work things out. So I, I think, you know, again, with Mateo positionally or in terms of looking for steals, I think it's time maybe to start scouring and seeing what your alternatives are both on waivers and through trade. Uh, because I have that same worry. I don't know, not that the, the Orioles have a, a ton of roster depth, but I, I don't know how long the Orioles would, would stick with him. And you you picked him up, no doubt, to get the steals. So if there's a situation where he's not necessarily going to play enough to get them, then then you've got to adjust. So that's, you know, that's how I deal with that situation. I feel like I've just fallen into this strange early season place. I never thought I'd be here a few years ago where I... I'm fixated more on usage right away. Number of starts. How often is is a player playing? Uh, Mateo entering Friday has started five or six games so far for the Orioles. And I almost think I, I, I might be running into a trap, but I think since I don't know what the rubric is for each team and what they care about, they're at least tipping their hand a little bit with what they've chosen to do so far. And I think when you get to a point where Let's say a series comes up and it's a four-game series and the guy that you thought was going to play every day plays two out of four games. If it shifts quickly like that for these types of players, that's when I start to get very nervous. I think you have to be willing to make a good, quick decision. We saw Kevin Smith get a couple days off uh, the first two games of that series against the Rays 
and then against the two lefties to end the series, he was back in. So what I'm watching for this weekend before I make a decision on Kevin Smith in mixed leagues is, does he get any starts against right-handed pitching this weekend? Or is he getting a temporary move into a platoon? It's entirely possible that you could cut players like Mateo or Smith or other guys in this situation. You could drop them now, and they could play well for a few weeks, and you could be just picking them back up later. And I think that's something that we, we lose sometimes. We think, if we cut this player, we'll never get this player back. There's no penalty for dropping the player and getting him back on your team later. So I've really been trying to prioritize how teams are deploying these players even ahead of some of the underlying skills, because we're still at a point where underlying skills are basically meaningless. We're talking about a half dozen games for a lot of these players. Right. Now, I'm taking a similar approach, DBR, and looking at the the roster trends, looking at the roster rates for these players that we're concerned about and looking at the change in roster rate, because if it's a flat or declining uh, roster rate and the, the baseline's really low, like you're, you have a, a, I, I wouldn't have had Smith in a 12 team league, but let's say I've got him in a, in a 14 teamer and you know, there, and the, the roster rate is, is not commensurate with that, you know, with that, that level of, uh, of depth, then yeah, I, th- I would drop them and hope that I could pick them back up later. Or, you know, if I'm looking at a player in 12 team and everybody that I'm rostered is at 60% roster rate and up, and I've got somebody who's at 30, you know, even if I really like that player, that player's probably going to be be the odd player out. Yeah, and if you're looking at, in deeper leagues at some players to think about playing, like picking up and playing because of how they're being used, I'm pretty interested in Paul DeYoung as a very inexpensive pickup for deeper mixed leagues. He started all five games, entering play on Friday. He's available in 80% of CBS leagues. It just seems like the Cardinals are really giving him a chance to show that that is still his job at shortstop. And Mundo Sosa looked like during draft season could have been in some kind of timeshare. And yeah, it could happen in a few weeks, but I'm... I'm interested enough in DeYoung seeing what they've done to this point to kind of put him as a, a low low bid sort of player for this weekend. I think Christian Walker maybe fits into this conversation a little bit as well if you're looking for some cheap power at first base. I wasn't, wasn't really opposed to him as a very late corner option throughout draft season, but I also wasn't going out of my way to get him. I mean, he's six for six in terms of starts. Every start in the cleanup spot, it looks very clear that for the foreseeable future, he is the everyday first baseman in Arizona. Yeah, and first base not is not the deepest, so you know why not? Uh, and he may be the sort of player that, uh, again, if it doesn't work out, if there's a a, a flavor of the week that uh, that's out there and he becomes expendable, chances are probably you can get him back. One of the players that's currently uh, on the wrong side of platoon in Arizona that I think is really interesting, especially in leagues where he's catcher eligible, is Cooper Hummel. The way things have played out so far, it's basically been a DH platoon where Seth Beer gets the starts against righties. Cooper Hummel gets those starts against lefties. Hummel leads off when he plays, and he's been old for the level in the minor leagues, but I know it's been pretty tough sledding these first couple weeks of pickups looking for catchers. Uh, in two catcher leagues especially. I'm intrigued by this minor league track record. I think he's versatile enough to find some playing time elsewhere. So it's a small side platoon for now, but in very deep leagues, like 20 team mixed leagues and NL only leagues where Cooper Hummel's out there, I think he's on my radar as a very deep league pickup this weekend. Yeah, no, that's the the right spot for him, maybe even a little bit shallower. 
you know, early on, uh, well, early on, I mean, you know, what we were drafting, uh, I was interested in Brian Lavastida in, in that type of in that type of role. Uh, but I think Hummel, in terms of how that is developing, that he would be a, a superior option. So, you know, maybe, maybe he develops into something that's even uh, a player that has even broader appeal. I mentioned Kevin Smith at the beginning of this as a, a possible drop consideration. I know people are, are very curious about him, but this depth chart as a whole, the way Oakland is structured, I think we're going to see tons of moving parts. One thing that's been pretty consistent to this point, Tony Kemp has started all but one game. We're seeing Seth Brown playing a lot between first base and the outfield. They actually made a start in center field earlier this week, which... Like, good for him like I, I just I didn't expect that to happen we've seen him make a start against a lefty as a DH so the playing time for Brown might actually be a tick better than expected and his starts are coming in the heart of that lineup he's hit fifth in all but one of his starts and he hit cleanup when he didn't hit fifth so uh, as you look at Oakland is there anyone whether it's Brown or Elvis Andrews or Tony Kemp or Sheldon Noisy is there anybody else you're, you're interested in just based on what they're doing so far I'd like to see Noisy play, uh, continue to, to play pretty regularly. I, I've been encouraged by that so far. Uh, similarly, uh, with Chad Pinder, um, got a few starts in a row and definitely want to uh, monitor his playing time because there's a lot of power there, even though there's also a lot of swing and miss. You you mentioned uh, Elvis Andrews, and he's off to a fairly good start. So he's somebody who... I think is not on a lot of people's radar because it's been several seasons in a row of definitely a lower level of, of production than, you know, what we used to be accustomed to, but not anybody that I'm, I'm probably going to be bidding on this weekend, but definitely somebody I'm, I'm watching. So the, the key player there player there in Oakland is the one that you, you let off with um, Seth Brown, because he is hitting in a prominent spot in the order. He is playing very regularly. You would expect that to have happened, you would expect that to be be continuing for Seth Brown. And this coming week, the the A's have a really nice schedule for their hitters. So if you did want to pick up Brown or or you know maybe even go a little further down the lineup and get somebody like like Andrews, for example, uh, they've got seven home games, four against the Orioles, three against the Rangers. So there's probably John Gray is is going to be the the toughest starter that they face out of that group. And really, beyond him, there's nobody that not to be you know mean about it or anything but but nobody there that you would really fear for your hitters so uh if there are any Oakland A's that you've been on the fence about this is the definitely the week to go pick them up and at the very minimum stream them and for me Seth Brown is absolutely the top of the list and and the one that I would target in my 12 team leagues yeah you're getting volume from the A's this week and you're getting favorable matchups that Monday night home opener against the Orioles I've been thinking about going to it and ooh, I don't know Al it's uh that could be a tough watch. I might be a little more comfortable just enjoying that one from the couch when I could flip over <laughs> to some other games that night if I if I don't really like what I see. Uh, last bat I wanted to bring up for this week's episode is Michael Franco. He's played and started each game at third base for the Nationals so far this season, and he's moving around a little bit in the bottom part of the lineup. He's hit as high as fifth once, mostly hitting from the seventh spot, but stuck between fifth and eighth. I think with a player like Franco, there's always this sort of like post-prospect hype hangover when they keep getting opportunities to play. Um, are you seeing anything different in him? Because the playing time has been there, and I don't really see anybody pushing him in the short term to take a large share of those starts at third base with Carter Keboom out. 
Uh, well, I'm really glad you wanted to talk about Franco because he was a, a late cut from my waiver wire column. Uh, and partly because I don't really see myself pursuing Franco outside of 15 teamers. But I am going to put in some bids in, in the 15 teamers for him. Uh, I don't know that I'm seeing anything different that's going to be lasting. I mean, he's hitting 310 right now. That's on the basis of a, a high line drive rate, which I, I can never mention the the term high line drive rate without also saying it's a really variable stat, uh, <laughs> but that's just the truth of it, whether it's really high or really low. Uh, but he's, he's got three barrels so far. So we're, you know, we're talking about very small numbers. We're talking about maybe just a, a very short little hot streak here for Michael Franco, but it's not like he's was, was without value or without a, an intriguing skill set earlier in his career. So I think for me that, that uh, gives me a little bit of a reason to think maybe maybe there's a little something to this than just him having a few good games. Yeah, probably still more of a 15-team mixed league sort of player and deeper, but uh, more opportunities than I certainly expected back just a few weeks ago. Question from Star Platinum. What about Aristides Aquino with Tommy Pham going down? I think the... The good news for the Reds, it looks like Pham could actually be back in the lineup as soon as Friday. So he's still more in that day-to-day group as opposed to someone that we know is headed to the IL. Uh, but I think with Aquino, we saw it on display on Thursday night. He actually homered off of Walker Bueller. It was the last batter that Bueller faced in that start. And had that gone differently, Walker Bueller might have picked up a win in that outing. Not that I'm bitter about it or anything. But I, I do think the problem for Aquino is still mostly breaking pitches. The ball that he hit out was a 93-mile-hour fastball above the top of the zone. It was actually a very impressive home run. Um, but I still see Aquino as a guy that's probably not playing enough for usage outside of NL-only leagues. Yeah, I may, yeah I, I'm not going to go too farther, too much farther with that because, yeah, I, I'm not going to bid on him in 15-teamers. But maybe if you're in a super deep mixed league, uh, he's somebody you can stash in case there is uh, some opportunity. Uh, probably not this one with Fam, but you know somewhere down the line for him to play regularly because we've we've seen the power from him at least uh, in in short uh, in short spurts. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think that there's enough there to merit you uh, giving up a roster spot in, in your 15 teamers. Let's move over to starting pitchers and a couple interesting names that are really jumping up in terms of roster rates. Mackenzie Gore, who will debut on Friday, uh, sight unseen, but based on what he was doing at AAA and what he did this spring, understandably, people are excited about him again, up to 70% rostered in CBS leagues, and assuming that the rotation stays on its current schedule, he would get another turn at Petco on Wednesday against the Reds, so not a terrible matchup that second time out, and we'll get the benefit of seeing how things go for him against Atlanta, I believe it is, on Friday night. So I'm curious what your interest level is in Gore, because with that type of roster rate, he's definitely creeping more into that 8-10 to 10 team league consideration if you want to go yeah. get him. Well, and a couple of things that I wrote in regard to him in the waiver wire piece is, first of all, regardless of how he performs, I guess if it's maybe really disastrous, you pull back a little bit, but... There's a lot of excitement around him. All the, the reports on him are, are outstanding right now. He uh, obviously had had setbacks uh, last year, but you know prior to that looked like you know one of the most exciting pitching prospects in all of baseball. So if he goes out against Atlanta and has a mediocre or maybe even kind of a poor start, I just don't think that that should that should dampen our enthusiasm that much. 
uh, you know, we've seen that with plenty of, of pitching prospects who rebound really well after a, a bad first or maybe even first couple of starts. Uh, that's going to be an interesting one, too. We'll probably get to him later, I imagine. But Kyle Wright also pitching in that game. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that even if he has a, a mediocre start that we're, we're talking 10 percent and up of, of fab. For Gore, because what, at this point, what are you saving it for? He's one of the best pitching prospects in baseball. A lot of the big prospects are already rostered right now because they started the year on on opening day rosters. Uh, I think this is one of the few players this year, once the season gets going, that you you don't empty the bank for, but you you certainly uh, get aggressive enough that you spend uh, more than ten percent of your your fab. Yeah, and I guess I, I would look at Gore this way compared to a lot of the other pitchers that we talk about on this show every single week, the ceiling is a lot higher. It seems like half the pitchers we talk about on this pod, and that might even be a conservative estimate, but half of them are really matchup dependent plays to the point where you don't even want to necessarily use a roster spot to hold them after you throw them in your lineup. It's it's a lot of churn and burn. You know, It's mostly guys that you're thinking about very short term, and as soon as the schedule creates an opportunity for you to make a move for someone else, you tend to make a move for someone else. That's not the ceiling at all for Gore. I mean, Gore is tracking back toward the prospect hype that he had before things went wrong. So I think you'd be right to be aggressive in the range of, yeah, 10% or so of your budget. That's a great call, too, with with teams being much better about having prospects on their roster for opening day. That big wave of players that comes usually around the first week of May or so, it's not going to be the same as it's been in the past. So, it would be a very unusual situation to have a player, especially in mixed leagues, that comes up this year that everyone's going to throw you know, 40 to 50% of their budget at. And that's a tough way to play anyway, as we've learned over the years. I'm glad you mentioned Kyle Wright because I think he's pushing his way into shallow league consideration as well. And that Gore-Wright matchup on Friday, one of the best pitching matchups to watch just from a gathering more information about both of these players' perspective. I think I mentioned it on this show last week. Kyle Wright really changed up his pitch mix through a ton of curveballs, added a little bit of velocity. Atlanta's sticking with a six-man rotation for now. And even if you don't want to look at Wright as someone that's going to stick on your roster in shallow leagues, he does have a home start coming up next week against Miami. And almost regardless of what happens here in his matchup against the Padres, that is an opportunity that I'm interested in using Kyle Wright for. It's a little tricky because... Uh, I think probably less so because of that matchup, but but just because Wright is one of the the most added players right now. There's there's some building hype around him, so he's probably going to be a player like Gore, where it's going to take a big bid to get him. And then when you tack onto that, oh yeah, in the first start he'll make for me, he's going to have this really favorable matchup. Uh, but I'm I'm a little hesitant, and and maybe I'm penalizing him, maybe unfairly because. Mackenzie Gore, we have not seen pitch in the major leagues yet. Kyle Wright, we have numerous times. And I do worry that what we saw in Wright's first start, does he come out with a, a different pitch mix uh, on, on Friday uh, against the Padres? Is that curveball going to be as effective this time around? Or as you alluded to earlier, are the scouting reports going to you know help the batters make the necessary adjustments there? So... Uh, I, I'm a, I would be extremely hesitant to go anywhere close to 10% on Kyle Wright this week, even though that might be what it takes to get him. Yeah, I don't think you want to bid quite as much, but I also think there's a chance that what we saw was real. It was a big enough change where you might find yourself holding on to Wright a bit longer than some of the other streaming pitcher types. 
And I think we have a guy that maybe is graduating from that level. I know he's someone that you've liked at least off and on, if not consistently, since he came back to the States from the KBO. That's Merrill Kelly. He's now up above 50% rostered in CBS leagues. And even if you've been a skeptic, which I think I have been for most of the time since Kelly came back, the velo's up. Looks like he's made some adjustments himself. He's got at Washington and home against the Mets. So it's a two-start week. And I think if there's a a 12-team league where he's still somehow out there, you definitely want him for a two-start week. But he also might be a little more sticky on the rosters this year than he has been in the past. I think so. And I actually drafted Kelly for my 12-teamer, not because... I'm, I'm so big on him that it's just like, oh, this is a player I have to have. But this was a team where I had drafted pitchers that carried a lot of risk. And I thought, okay, well, who can I kind of keep on the bench to, to you know, be there in a week where somebody might be injured or, or might be worthy of, of cutting and I need somebody to step in? And, you know, in the late rounds, Kelly what really stood out to me as that kind of pitcher. That would be nice to have on my roster. Now, fortunately... He's throwing a little bit harder, uh, about two miles an hour harder than he did early last season. It's not really translating into a big whiff rate. It's a little bit higher than it's been in the past, but uh, he's getting a lot of called strikes. He's um, not allowing uh, high uh, high exit velocity batted balls uh, in the air. We're looking at small samples, so these are all you know these numbers could look very different two weeks from now. But they're encouraging signs that you can add to the profile that you already have of somebody who you know could just give you pretty steady innings and, and just you know not really be damaging. Velo and uh, a new changeup, or at least a, an improved changeup for Merrill Kelly among the changes so far. So I'm definitely more interested now than I have been really at any point in the last two seasons. Looking a little bit deeper, I'm curious to get your thoughts on Justin Steele, rostered in about a third of CBS leagues right now. Like Merrill Kelly, has a two-start week coming up. Both starts at home for Steele. First one against the Rays, second one against the Pirates. And Steele was a strikeout per inning arm, kind of working between the bullpen and the rotation last year. You know, thinking about him long-term, Al, I have some questions about using him in non-two-start weeks or in, in reasonably difficult matchups. So I, I see him as more of a, a bottom-of-the-rotation sort of guy for fantasy purposes. But I'm curious what your interest level is in him where available. Uh, it, it really is format-dependent. Uh, he's got the dual starter-reliever eligibility, so Sparp appeal there if you play in a league with uh, dedicated relief spots. Um, he's probably one of your better options that you're going to be able to, to grab off of waivers if he, in fact, still is and st- still is on waivers uh, in those leagues. Uh, so if he's available, to me, he's an absolute must-add in that kind of format. I'm a little bit skeptical, given the plate discipline profile, that over the long term, he'll be a strikeout per inning guy. I think in, in some ways he's maybe, I think he'll profile more like Merrill Kelly, but uh, is a more reliable inducer of grounders. So even though he may not help you a ton with strikeouts, I do think that he'll be a good run preventer, uh, could get you know quality starts, wins. So basically what I'm saying is I, I, I kind of like him for points leagues. I don't know how great he's going to be for Roto. Uh, but uh, there, there's some appeal there, and you know, somebody who can get a lot of ground balls consistently, um, you know, he's he's at least going to be able to keep runs off the board. Yeah, I think the park alone makes Justin Steele an interesting streamer when the right matchups come up, and I'm willing to take my medicine with the first matchup against the Rays, knowing that, that second one against the Pirates follows in weekly formats. A couple other pitchers I wanted to get to here. Spencer Strider, who's still not in that expanded Atlanta rotation, but had a 
ton of pitches thrown in his last relief appearance, so he seems to be stretched out enough to make the move into the rotation if they wanted to do that. What are you doing with Strider in leagues where he's available, especially redraft leagues? and keeper leagues and dynasty leagues, it's been easy. Where available, you want him because you can kind of see where the long-term future lies. But in leagues that are redraft formats, especially 12-teamers, he might be the most skilled pitcher out there in some of those leagues, but the usage isn't quite what we want it to be. Yeah. Um, well, in some ways, sort of reminds me of the level of interest that I had in TJ Antone this time last year, where we didn't know if he was going to close. We didn't know if he was going to be long relief, if he was going to be in the rotation. Uh, you know, ultimately, of course, it wound up, you know, being sort of a lost season. But, um, you know, th- there's that kind of appeal where, uh, he could fill any number of roles that could be valuable. And the long relief one is probably the one that you'd be la- least interested in. And yet, you know, he could he could be a viable reliever in a 12-team league, uh, even in that role, if he, uh, if he chews up enough innings. So, yeah, I'm definitely looking to add Strider wherever I can. Yeah, really good numbers in the pitching model, the pitching plus uh, model that, you know, Saris has. But Oh, we just need a better role for it to actually work out. Another guy that I, I thought was interesting because of how he looked in his first start of the season is Michael Lorenzen. I looked at the schedule for the upcoming week, though. He's got the Astros. I don't see a lot. I don't see enough there to justify rostering him and then holding him for an entire week before possibly using him the following week. So he's more of a watch list player for me in most circumstances. Absolutely. I figure that's what he's going to be for most people. Uh, and because of that Houston matchup, I also did not include him in the waiver column, but uh, was in was in the first draft of that. So, yeah, I want to see how he does against the Astros. Um, but for now, I kind of put him in the same bucket as Justin Steele, as somebody who eventually will get SPRP eligibility, uh, has over his career gotten a lot of ground balls, and uh, you know, so could have that similar type of appeal, which unfortunately means that maybe he's not going to be somebody you're going to use other than to stream in, in most of your roto leagues. Let's go to the Pittsburgh rotation, where it looks like Zach Thompson is going to have a two-start week. He's available in some deeper formats out there as well. Both of those starts coming on the road. The first one lined up against the Brewers. Second one lined up against the Cubs. Any interest either as a one-week play, or do you actually see anything of longer-term interest when it comes to Thompson? Uh, Thompson for me is more of a watch list guy. Um, I I think this is a fairly good two step. And I actually thought of you because on one of the recent episodes, you said you weren't convinced that the Brewers were really going to be a very good offensive team. And I thought, well, okay, if you're holding that opinion, maybe I could see you, you picking him up. Uh, but, uh, as of, as of right now, yeah, that is a pretty good two step, but I'm not really viewing Thompson as much more than a streamer. We'll see how he comes out of this week. Uh, he had a very nice debut with the Marlins, uh, kind of tailed off after a really, really good start. So I kind of feel like I just need to see more of Zach Thompson to know exactly what to expect. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I see a little more of like a back-end type starter. I would be in in a 15-team league. I'm probably holding off in a 12 right now. I think he's the kind of guy I'd be streaming more later this summer if I was chasing volume. And I knew at that point that you know, maybe the ratios were already a little bit beat up. I think we've talked about that type of situation quite a bit over the years. And I think that's sort of where I'm at with Thompson right now. And just looking at the Brewers, and I think this is important to keep an eye on too as we get further into the season. I think I'm looking at team strikeout rate to see if they've improved from last year because they had a strikeout problem. So far, that actually has been a bit better, 22.2%. 
I'm looking at the health of of you guys. Luis Arias right now, of course, is down. Uh, And Christian Yelich. Yelich is hitting the ball hard. He missed the home run by about a foot in the home opener on Thursday, making a lot more consistent hard contact. So there's a couple things that are trending in the right direction in these early series that that could eventually put me back into the at Milwaukee is scary for streaming purposes. I wouldn't say I'm all the way there yet. I'm just starting to take a step in that direction based on what we've seen here in these first few series, which I think is it's a reasonable way to go. Like I, I just things can change so fast with a team. If you take one key bat out of the lineup and you know, maybe they're mixing and matching in a couple of spots. That's all it takes to go from even being an average lineup to a below average lineup. And then suddenly you're looking at guys like Thompson and Justin Steele and you're throwing them out there in a matchup that you wouldn't have even thought about throwing them out there for just a few weeks ago. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's a thin line uh, to be sure. Uh, right now, though, for me, uh, Thompson is on the, the watch list side of that line. What are you doing with Drew Smiley at this point? He's got another start against the Pirates. That would be at Wrigley, and that would be one week from today. So in leagues where he's available, is Drew Smiley in your circle of trust as a streamer? I, I Yeah, I remember we talked about him uh, probably about this time last week, and I said he was not in the circle of trust yet. And you, you're really not in the circle of trust uh, when you're passing on a, a pitcher who's got a start against the Pirates. And I just still do not trust Drew Smiley. Yeah, he was easy to avoid in some cases because it was at Pittsburgh and then they have a road matchup for him in Colorado this weekend. I don't think the result of the Colorado start really changes my issues or my my interest in him. I think in, in 15 teamers, I'm going to say he's in for me. I'll, I'll, I'll take my chances on Smiley just just by the thinnest of margins, like probably the, the the least stable starter that I'm willing to throw out there uh, at this point. Uh, Reaver San Martin actually worked out of the bullpen on Thursday, so it's not confirmed just yet, but he would line up to actually pitch in San Diego on Tuesday. I'm actually pretty interested in him if we can get confirmation that he's a regular part of this rotation going into next week. I am making the assumption that he is because he was just following Luis Sessa as uh, as the follower. Uh, Sessa is the opener. And uh, like you said, pitched incredibly well in that game. So... Uh, I like him a lot. Another ground ball pitcher who last season showed a little bit of strikeout upside. I'm not sure how much there is beyond that, but uh, San Martin is definitely somebody for me that I would feel very comfortable streaming when there's when there's a good matchup. Yeah, five scoreless behind Sessa and just two hits allowed. So really impressive performance for him. And again, hopefully getting bulk or a confirmed start against the Padres next week. How about two Rockies on the road? I think of all the people I know, you might be more willing to use Colorado pitchers on the road than than most. Antonio Sensatella and Austin Gomber have road outings next week. They've got road matchups against the Tigers. So are you going after one or both of them? Probably not. Uh, if, it, if that was paired with another start, that was pretty good. Because the Tigers have not been hitting that well, but I still, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this team both pitching and hitting wise uh, until they, they, you know, prove otherwise over a longer, longer span of games. So yeah, I'm not quite at the one start, uh, one start stream yet with Gomber or Sensatella. I'm much closer with Gomber, but I just want to see another start or two from him. 
And even though Kyle Freeland's had two pretty stinky starts so far, the peripherals really aren't that bad. So I'm, I have Freeland on a couple of teams, and I'm not dropping him just yet. I'm also not starting him either, but uh, I'm not out on Kyle, Kyle Freeland either. I think when Kyle Freeland pitches, Al, I think you owe it to yourself to go over to whatever DFS site you like to play on, <laughs> DraftKings, FanDuel, whatever. <laughs> go to the biggest field tournament the reasonably low stakes, $3, $5, whatever, $10, whatever you want to play, but just something with a big field. I think you have to play Freeland. I think if you believe in Freeland, you need to go and use him in those spots because if you're right, it's going to save you a ton on the cap. You're probably going to get him at a low usage and you're going to have an opportunity to take down a tournament. So I I like it. I'm always afraid. I'm afraid of the Colorado (laughs) starters, especially Kyle Freeland. Uh, I think if of these two, if I had to use one of Sensatella or Gomber, I think it'd be Gomber. I think he's just the better pitcher of the two at this point. So he's probably the on-again, off-again Rocky starter that I am trying to use on the road. I noticed Michael Pineda could be back for that series against Colorado. I believe the schedule has him throwing at Toledo on Sunday, and that would keep him on a regular rest to be good to go probably Friday next week. Pineda is a little more available since he opened the season uh, behind schedule, and people just weren't throwing that late dart on him. Really curious if you're interested in him at all as a, a deeper mixed league sort of target that could stick around on your roster. Absolutely. And as you're saying this, I th- I'm thinking uh, this was an oversight. He definitely belonged in the waiver wire piece and um, would want to uh, stash him initially, but definitely interested in picking him up in, in deeper leagues. I think we kind of know the story with Pineda and what he does well and what he doesn't. Mostly it's that he keeps... Keeps the free passes to a minimum, and when things aren't going well, he struggles with the long ball. But I do think, especially early in the season, pitching in Detroit when it's a little cooler, it's a pitcher-friendly park anyway, there could be a lot of spots where you actually end up liking him quite a bit. And if we can find out coming out of that Sunday turn at AAA that he is, in fact, all the way back and ready to go for that rocky start, he jumps up this list a little bit because there is some longer-term appeal. Uh, We have an injury in the Mets rotation, another injury, Taiwan Walker, on the IL right now with shoulder bursitis. What are you doing with David Peterson where available? I'd be interested in picking him up in 15-teamers. And when there was a lack of clarity uh, initially with uh, DeGrom and, and who was going to fill that role, I mean, I thought it, it could have been Peterson as, as easily as it could have been McGill. Obviously, the Mets made a great choice with Tyler McGill. <laughs> but I like Peterson too. So uh, not to the degree that uh, I would like McGill where he, he does belong in 12 teamers, but Peterson should be picked up in, in 15 team leagues for sure. Two other streamers, both from the AL West, Chris Flexen. Do you trust him at home against the Royals next week? Mm. I think probably this, this is not going to make a lot of sense because his profile is not nearly as scary as Drew Smiley's, but I, I kind of put him in the same bucket just because I, I think there's really limited upside there with Chris Flexen. Royals are still a pretty good matchup. Yeah, I'm not seeing it. I'm not. I, I'd rather spend elsewhere this weekend than to, to stream him for one start. I think the guy that I'm actually excited about of the AL West starters, who's still not rostered a lot of places, is Taylor Hearn. Second week in a row that he's been mentioned on this show. It's a good matchup for him. He's got Oakland. It's on the road. Uh, it's a pure streaming situation for me in most circumstances right now because if you look a little further, the next time he pitches after that start against the A's, likely against the Astros, and I don't want to use him there, and I might not have the luxury of reserving him in leagues where I'm picking him up. I, I tell you what, if if uh, so it's a 15-team league and 
you know, rosters are deep. And so, you know, if I, if I've got somebody who's, you know, I have, let's say a Taiwan Walker, somebody goes on the IL and I need to pick somebody up. Maybe I put in that dollar bid on Flexen or a less than 1% bid on Flexen. Taylor Hearn is that guy that I was referring to before. Somebody that I would really much rather spend a little bit more money on because I do think that the the opportunities to stream are going to be more frequent with him than with somebody like Flexen. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case that being in the AL West. I think that's even with the improvements of some of those teams, there's a little more a little more buffer to use a guy like this, especially at home. I mean, we've seen that ballpark in Texas play uh, pretty neutral compared, especially compared to the old ballpark in Arlington, which is always yeah. one of those places where you just you wanted nothing to do with with back end starters in those days. Let's shift the focus over to closers, the closer carousel. I know you guys got to talk a lot about it. You and Michael Beller had Greg Jewett on this pod on Thursday. So if you didn't catch that episode yet, you should go back and listen to that because you're able to go more in depth about all these situations that we're going to be able to do on this show. Uh, but I, I wonder, in in a landscape where uh, you know, Danny Jimenez, who got a, a, a save for Oakland this week, and Jake Diekman, who appears to be part of some kind of committee in Boston, Jorge Lopez, who might be the closer on a, on a rebuilding team in Baltimore. Like These are the names that are most commonly available. In more shallow leagues, we've got guys like David Robertson still hanging around on the wire, and I, I think Robertson is just a cut above a lot of the other relievers currently out there that you're chasing for saves. So if you happen to be in a spot where Robertson's out there, being a little more aggressive to get him makes some sense to me. Is there anyone of that group out of Diekman, Lopez, Jimenez, even I guess Tanner Rainey could probably be a part of this too, although I would, I'll just answer my own question right now. I think Rainey's better than those guys. Like I think I'd go Robertson, Rainey, and then start to work through this next cluster. How are you dealing with all of these committees and these bad team closers that are emerging early on this season? Uh, well, I'm generally avoiding them, and I just want to go back to what you said about Tanner Rainey because I 100% agree that he's not he doesn't really belong in that other group because it seems like he's got a very clear path to regular, slate, regular saves in Washington. And I just really like him and just hope that he can keep the walks uh, under control because there's just a ton of swing and miss there. Um, you know, there's just an opportunity for him to be really good. Uh, so I don't see that kind of upside either in terms of skill or opportunity with Diekman, Lopez, Jimenez, uh, any of the others that you mentioned. Uh, I talked about this on that show with Michael Beller and Greg Jewett on, on Thursday that my approach so far in week one and what I, I'm planning to do this weekend is to, to be really not aggressive at all with um, with closers. And we we talked about this last Friday because I said I wasn't going to bid much on Robertson. And sure enough, I didn't get him anywhere. I didn't expect him to put a put a bid in there to keep people honest and, and give myself some sort of chance to get him. But, uh, you know, I, I think they're going to be opportunities down the line to get good relievers who, because of injury or just shuffling of uh, roles, work their way into regular saves um, when maybe others have spent more of their money and I, I've got a better competitive advantage uh, to win those bids. Uh, so that said, out of this group that you mentioned, I do find Danny Jimenez really interesting because we, we threw the question to Greg Jewett of, you know, what, who do you think is going to, if anybody, wind up being the leader in saves in that Oakland bullpen? He said probably somebody they, they trade for which I thought was a really interesting answer and probably correct. But of the existing group, I think Jimenez has the most intriguing skill set. 
So if you want some saves here and now, and um, yeah, I don't think that you're really going to have to spend a lot uh, to get them from Jimenez. Uh, he's probably, after Tanner Rainey, the one that I'll, I'll target this weekend. Yeah, I think with Rainey, I mean, we've seen some issues with walks in the past. He was one of those guys that if you go back and look at 2020, and it's a little easier to take relief performances in 2020 and, and get some meaning from them than it is for a lot of other types of players. A 32 to 7 strikeout to walk ratio in 20 and a third innings in that season for Rainey. A lot went wrong for him a year ago. I mean, 25 walks in 31 and two thirds, just 38 appearances, had an ERA over seven. Um, so the thing I'm looking for is control. You know, how is he doing with walks? Three Ks against no walks so far. Looking at Eno's pitching model, interesting too that the location number on Tanner Rainey is also good. I, I find that to be really encouraging given some of the issues he's had, both with homers and with free passes during his time in the big leagues. So I, I think there is uh, some progress being made with that kind of skills flaw that we've seen from him. And I think from you know, the Nats perspective, I, I guess I never I never looked at Kyle Finnegan and saw a, an obvious dominant closer option there. I think he's just a nice piece to have in the bullpen, but not necessarily the the guy you'd want to have in the highest leverage spots. So um, that also gives me a little extra confidence that Rainey can really secure his hold on this role. Yeah, no, and likewise, I think he's he's worth a shot. There's obviously risk there, but the fact that I don't think there's a, a lot of competition in that bullpen and that the upside for him is really considerable. Uh, I'm. Again, I'm not going to go uh, all out to get any relievers this weekend, but my most aggressive bids will probably be for Rainey. I had one other question that I wanted to throw out there, a drops-related question for you. And if you drafted Michael Conforto, you probably thought, surely he'll be signed by April 15th. And here we are so far, even with a few injuries, the, the Teoscar Hernandez injury, I think, was one where people on Twitter were kind of saying, hey, there you go. Go ahead, Blue Jays. Go, go get Michael Conforto. It hasn't happened yet, and I think even when it does happen now, we, we learned in just a couple weeks ago that uh, he had a shoulder injury way back in January, and once he signs, it's not like he's going to be in the big leagues three days later. It's going to take a little bit of time for him to go either on a rehab assignment or instructs or whatever it is just to get his timing back against actual pitching. And then you wonder, how good is he going to be from the jump, once that happens, what are you doing with Michael Conforto in leagues where you might have stashed him? Or what are you telling people if you don't have him anywhere? What are you telling people to do? Is he still a hold or is he actually an early season drop just based on how this is playing out? Yeah, and this for me is hypothetical uh, because I did not draft Conforto anywhere. But for me, he's he would just be a drop in in 12-teamers. I mean, I would say 10, but I don't know how many 10-team leagues he's he would actually be in. But I think it would be fair to drop him in 12 teamers at this point uh, deeper than that. I, I don't think you can justify it uh, just because of what he, he could, if he signed tomorrow, <laughs> what, what he could give you uh, not too far down the line. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I think I'm looking at him and he's also coming off a down year, had some injuries last season. So I liked him as a bounce back player pre lockout. When I thought he would just sign like everybody else, once the lockout was over, I thought some team was going to get a bargain and he was going to come back and, and show us what he did in, in 2019 was actually a, like a legitimate skills consolidation. I, I, I do believe that is within range, but it's almost the same process now as 
holding on to a prospect in a typical year where there are more top prospects we're waiting on. And you say, okay, it's been a couple of weeks. They haven't brought the guy up. Well, in this case, we're just talking about an unsigned player. And then once we get that news, it's going to be, I mean, if he signed today, would he play in a game before May 1st? Can you, and can you get by for another two to three weeks with someone you can't use in your lineup? And I think that, that to me is something you really have to take into consideration. I'm actually erring on the side of even dropping Conforto in a 15 team league this weekend. If, if I need the space, I'd rather cut him than cut someone else I can actually use in my lineup right now, just based on where things stand right now. And I, I didn't think we would get here. I just, I thought we'd never have to answer this question about him. Yeah, well, I hadn't either. And actually, I was going to try to look something up really quickly. Uh, I probably can't do it now, but maybe you know top of mind what his roster rate would be in NFBC leagues because if it's... That's a pretty good indicator, yeah. Like yeah, how, I mean, how much is, is he like being dropped there? I could see that. But just, you know, in a vacuum. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd be really reticent to do that. Um, cause I'm just thinking of players that I am stashing in NFBC and I, I don't think that they have as much value potentially as, um, as Michael Conforto does, you know, they're, they're deep leagues. It's, it's not always easy to find what you need on waivers. So if you've got somebody you can stash on your bench, um, there are obviously limits to that. Well, but, thank uh, you. Thank you to the, uh, magical, uh, powers of, of technology. Michael Conforto is still rostered in 96% of NFBC main event leagues. So yeah, he's not going to last on waivers then. Right. So someone else would pick him up presumably at this point. I guess the, the question will be, where does that, when we speak on this podcast next week, will that still be 96% or will other people have started to lose the faith? Now, I think the, the follow-up question, you were saying 12 team leagues. So what is his roster rate in the online championship? I think that's an important thing to look at. So I'm going to pull that number up too, because I just think that's that's a good indicator of what sharp players are doing. He's rostered in 68% of online championship leagues. Those are 12 teamers. Entry fee is about a quarter of what it is to play in the main event, but that's probably a good cutoff at this point. If you're still waiting at a 12 and you need that spot, cut him loose in a 15. If you can hold off a little longer, try to hold off a little bit longer. But I just think we've reached that that point where he's going to need some time. It's not just signing late in spring training. It's signing after the season started. And when he shows up, he could be behind. He could be the kind of guy that opens the year in a pretty bad slump simply because pitching so far ahead. And, and that's going to be really frustrating too. So hopefully he's got a team soon, but uh, I, I'm, I'm increasingly frustrated by those places where I got the discount on Michael Conforto. That is going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Be sure to check out Al's waiver column this week. Every week goes up on Fridays. Usually before we start going live, it should be available to you. Theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast will get you a subscription for a dollar a month for the first six months. That would cover you for the whole season, plus everything else that we have going on the site as well. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to hit the like button on this video and subscribe to the Athletic Fantasy channel. And of course, if you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any platform where you could leave us a rating review for the podcast, we'd greatly appreciate it if you did that. You can find Al on Twitter at AlMelkyRBB. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns on Tuesday. Have a great weekend.